One of my favorite things about this time of year, though it is still cold and we get sporadic snow and we're never really sure how to dress our kids when we send them out the door in the morning, is that at least it's light when we do. And it's still light in the um, afternoon, early evening when we leave work, if that's the work schedule that you follow. The days are growing longer, creeping back toward a balance of light and night, which then equals out around March 20th, and then we celebrate spring. This past Wednesday marked the beginning of a coordinating season in the church called Lent, And that word, Lent, comes from Middle English, and it means, quite simply, springtime. Obviously, uh, this term favors the church in the northern hemisphere as seasons are reversed south of the equator, but liturgically speaking, Lent helps us mark the time and the emergence of new life all around us and within us as we journey week by week toward Easter. This is a season of 40 days, but we don't count Sundays, so actually it's 46. And it has significance, both with the Israelites who sojourned in the wilderness for 40 years, but also with Jesus spending 40 years, 40 days in the wilderness, diving deep into his own self and his soul before he emerged publicly into his ministry. Traditionally, then, during Lent, Christians practice spiritual disciplines and try to journey inward, both to draw closer to Jesus and also to uncover what might be keeping them far from him. Sometimes we give up habits or indulgences to keep our focus on Jesus' provision for us. Other times we take on new practices or habits to center our hearts on him. Either way, we embark on a spiritual journey through time, a pilgrimage, if you will, to walk closer to Jesus, so we might begin to walk a little more like Jesus. And this year, in this Lenten season, I want to use the Gospel of John as the lens to do that. In John, we find that Jesus has a repetitive habit of describing himself for our sake in terms we can comprehend. And you'll sometimes hear these referred to as the I am sayings of Jesus. You saw some of them in the bumper just there. I am, and then he'll finish with a metaphor from everyday life, an ordinary thing that you would find in your real life. So each week, we're going to take Jesus at his own words about himself to try to know him better, to try to encounter Jesus in our real life. And a quick word about the Gospel of John before we dive in for this season. Of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is the standout. It's the most unique. Some have said that John is a bit more colorful and dramatic in his rendering of Jesus, while the other three are more straightforward and to the point. I've always thought that this meme illustrated it pretty well here. I love that. I mean, I love it. And John's my favorite because of that, for all those reasons. And really, the the reason he's so different in his portrayal of Jesus is because he was the last gospel to be written down, probably around 80 to 90, common era. So while the first three gospels capture the stories and teachings and events of Jesus' life and got them down quickly in writing, the gospel of John has percolated a little bit longer. There has been more time and more distance to reflect on the Jesus event and experience, and to make meaning out of it, which is, of course, what we call theology, the experience of God and Jesus, and then making meaning out of it. 
John is therefore both more theological and more literary in structure. We find themes and metaphors and a portrait of the fully divine, fully human Jesus that is now speaking to the coming generations, the ones who will not have eyewitness accounts of who Jesus was and what he did. And the biggest, arguably most important theme that stands out to me in John is revealed right at the start in chapter one. John really wants to make the point that Jesus is God and God is with us. And so he begins with this cosmic poem that throws us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Very repetitive. (laughs) That's right. It's very ethereal, it's very mystical and abstract. The, the word here in Greek is logos. And simply put, it means the utterance, the revelation of God, the way God spoke in the beginning, the way God speaks now through Jesus. The word coexists with God. And so John is saying that Jesus is the word, the utterance of God, and was with God and was God at creation. Basically, Jesus equals God, And by the time we get to verse 14, we get to his overarching point. The word became flesh and made his home among us. Jesus is God. Jesus is here. God is here in real life. I like to summarize all that by saying that in John's writing about Jesus, God is cosmic and God is close. We see it in that first chapter. Jesus was at creation. Jesus is also living right here with us. We see it in the arc of the whole book of John. It begins in chapter 1 with that long cosmic poem about Logos and the creation of the universe. And then the gospel ends in chapter 21 with Jesus cooking fish for his disciples on the beach. And we see that same arc in each of the statements that we're going to explore in this sermon series. I am the light of the world. Each one of these sayings of Jesus in John is John trying to give us a way to grasp something of the infinite divine in our everyday, ordinary life. In one small sentence, Jesus is naming himself with God's name and then smashing it right up against something that's very real and recognizable in our ordinary human lives. So I am, those two words in this context, is not simply the first person present simple tense conjugation of the verb to be. It is an invoking of the holy name of God in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, maybe some of you are familiar with this story, Moses encounters a bush that is burning, but it's not consumed, and he knows he's having an encounter with the divine, so he asks for God's name, and God responds with, I am. It's really more like, I am that I am, or I am and was and will be and am being. (laughs) It's hard to translate a name that's really a verb. But God basically seems to want to convey God's ongoingness to Moses and to the Hebrew people. So Jesus knows full well what he's saying in the Gospel of John when he invokes this name as his own. I am the light of the world. I am God, ever-present, eternal, and unknowable, but I also want you to know me. So, think about me like light. 
Jesus spoke to the people again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light and dark is about the most universal metaphor you can get. The cycle of light and dark orders the rhythm of every single one of our days. We recognize and we experience light and dark even before we are born. For Jesus to say, I am the light, opens the door to easy and abundant understanding of one of the ways he's active in our lives and in our world. This is a metaphor that translates across time, across distance, across culture. But I want to take a moment to look at Jesus' words first in the very specific context where he said them, because that holds significance too. It's helpful to know what was going on. We know from the previous chapter, in John chapter 7, that the Jewish people are in the midst of one of their three great festivals, one that requires pilgrimage from wherever it is that they live to the temple in Jerusalem. And this festival is called Sukkot. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or Festival of Booths. I used to live in University City in St. Louis. It's a neighborhood there with a large Jewish population. And every year around September or October, I would start to see kind of like over the tops of the fences or at the the back of the driveways as you walked past little tabernacles go up in my Jewish neighbor's yards. These are quickly assembled structures with one wall usually open to the elements. They're simple, they're obviously temporary. There are gaps in the roof and the materials on the walls but they're decorated festively with lights and fabric and greenery. This was my annual reminder when I would see these go up that the eight-day festival of Sukkot was underway. And modern Jews observe this festival by passing as much time as possible outside in their makeshift booths, sharing meals, conversing with family and neighbors. It seems strange to the outside observer, nice and warm in our homes, But the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration. It's a remembrance of the Hebrew people's 40 years of time in the wilderness. And they remember and they celebrate how God provided for them there. The booths represent their impermanence, their transient living for that long period of time, how it wasn't meant to be where they lived forever, but God provided for them in the desert. God provided food with manna. God provided water from a rock. God provided presence and guidance with a pillar of cloud by day and what by night? Anyone remember? A pillar of fire. Light, which they could see through the cracks in their makeshift shelters. And while the ritual observance has changed over time, like most rituals do, there are descriptions of how this feast was likely observed by first century Jews in the temple. And some scholars write about a special ceremony that happened at the end of the festival. It was a dance of light that would have taken place in the women's court of the temple, and it would have gone on all night long. The room would have been filled with light, every oil lamp blazing, every menorah lit, and the priests would carry the lights and the torches as they danced until morning with the glory of God and God's provision refracting all around them. That level of detail isn't described in John's writing, of course. We're trying to do some contextual work here. But isn't it interesting to imagine how Jesus' words might have hit differently as he entered the temple again the next morning and said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All that you are remembering, celebrating, the goodness, the providence, the illumination, the salvation, the anticipation of salvation yet to come, that's me. I'm it. I'm the light. I believe Jesus was speaking to that very real and very recent experience of the people he was talking to. He was taking their real life and connecting himself to it in a way that they could grasp onto. And he did it in that very moment of history, but he also said it in a way that still reaches us 2,000 years later. Because for us, light is still life. The rhythm of its coming and going will always be what orders human time. So much so that we forget it. We take it for granted. We don't take much time to think about light. We just experience it until it's not there anymore. For example, well, now we're thinking about light. Now we're craving it. All of a sudden, we can't, we can't remember who's sitting next to us. Wait, what's going on around us? I don't, I don't can't remember anything. You turn back on. Light is vision. Light reveals what is all around us. It helps us be aware of how close we are to some people or how far away we are from others. It illuminates the way things are in the microcosms of our world, in this room, in your home, in your neighborhood. Light reveals. But light also pushes back fear. The dark removes from us one of our primary ways of knowing, and that unknown can be so frightening. My younger son, every night at bedtime, goes through the checklist of all the lights he needs on in his room, and in the hallway, and in the bathroom before he can safely go to sleep. Because the dark is scary to him. His vision is impaired. And even the littlest bit of light then can bring calm because now the pile of clothes on the floor or the books stacked on the dresser or the bathrobe hanging on the back of the door can be recognized for what they really are. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus then reveals truth about the world to us. And Jesus pushes back fear. And light is also direction. Think about our instinctive reactions these days when we find ourselves in a moment of physical darkness. You turn the light off in a room, but you still have to walk across to go up the stairs, or the power goes out while you're in the bathroom. (laughs) If Kirk had left the lights off a little bit longer a moment ago, it wouldn't have been all that long before you all did what? Pull out the flashlights that we all carry in our pockets now, right? We would not tolerate the darkness long if we weren't planning on it. We'd need our cell phone light to show us where we were going. This was the function of light that the Israelites were remembering in their Sukkot celebration, the pillar of light that God provided to light their path, to draw them in the direction they were supposed to go. We naturally move in the direction that is illuminated. Moths to flame, eyes to screens, Light draws us in and guides us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness. He guides us and he illuminates the direction we should go. 
But not everything about light has to do with our ability to see or perceive through sight alone. Light is also a way of being. Think about the morning sun as our spot on the earth rotates back into its early hours of daylight. Your eyes do not perceive it. They are closed. You are asleep. And yet, somehow, the light calls you to wakefulness. Even for people who are totally blind, have no sight whatsoever, studies are showing that their brains can still detect light through a, and I have to quote this, novel photoreceptor in the ganglion cell layer of the retina. That's different from how sighted people detect light through the rods and the cones in our eyeballs. But either way, light governs for people the circadian rhythm of our days. It tells us the way we are supposed to be awake. We speak of being enlightened, and it has nothing to do with actual light. It is a way of being. Light calls us to greater understanding, deeper insight. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Light awakens us. There are countless ways that this metaphor of light can take on meaning for us. I've named just a few. You might come up with all sorts of things that you know or you learn or you experience from light. Warmth, clarity, comfort, blinding flashes that jolt you out of complacency, beauty, wonder, peace. So as we step out into this first full week of Lent, as the days grow minutes longer, and soon the balance of light to dark will tip forward into spring, bring some attention to light in your real life. Notice it where you have taken it for granted. How does it fill and shape and guide you? What do you become aware of that you haven't paid attention to in a while? And what does it show you about Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the light, what is it that he is trying to show you? Will you pray with me? God, your light is the commencement and the culmination of creation. From now until forever, you are the light of life. You invite us to walk in your light and become lights to the world as we do so. Revive our hearts to sing. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Amen.